Appreciate everyone's presence this evening. I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel of John tonight, the Gospel of John. From previous study, you know that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, four books that tell us about some of the events in the life of Christ. Sometimes we say these are books are about the life of Christ. They really are selective and uh, talk about, tell us about some of the events in the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to a great extent, talk about the same events, although each of those Gospels contains material unique to it, and each one of them uh, has its own points of emphasis that are unique to itself. And so Matthew will contain material that Mark and Luke don't contain. Mark contains material that Matthew and Luke don't contain. Matthew emphasizes certain things to his readers. Mark emphasizes certain things to his readers. Luke emphasizes certain things to his uh, readers as well. Now John is a little bit different from the other three uh, uh, Gospels. Uh, It doesn't talk about some of the real significant events in Jesus' life that the other Gospels do talk about, and it includes material that the other Gospels omit. Let me give you some examples of that. For example, John says nothing about the birth of Jesus. Of course, Matthew and uh, Mark, uh, Luke talk about that uh, to some length. Um, uh, John doesn't talk about the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. There's only uh, an allusion to his baptism, if that. John doesn't include parables the way the other Gospels do. Uh, John doesn't include Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, although there is a confession made by Peter in the book of John. John doesn't include an account of the transfiguration or the institution of the Lord's Supper. John places the cleansing of the temple at the very beginning in the second chapter of John. The other Gospels include that toward the end of their books. And so some of this material is is unique. John uh, handles it and reports it in a unique sort of way, omitting some of these significant events that are included in the other gospel accounts. On the other hand, John tells us about some things that the other three don't tell us anything about. And so John tells us about Nicodemus' visit to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, a very long account about that conversation. John is the only gospel writer uh, to tell us about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. John contains these seven I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. The other gospel accounts don't say it quite that way, and so they don't contain those I am statements. Uh, John is the only gospel that tells us about the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus in the upper room. And so John is a little different, omitting accounts of some of those significant events and including accounts of other events that the other three Gospels don't include. John provides accounts of seven miracles, excluding the resurrection of Jesus. Seven miracles performed by Jesus during His earthly ministry. He turns water to wine in chapter 2. He heals a nobleman's son in chapter 4. He heals a man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He feeds 5,000. 
The only miracle that's included in all four gospel accounts, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Also in chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water. In chapter 9, He gives a blind man his sight and raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And so, seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And so, even though there are fewer miracle stories in the Gospel of John, they are uh, very important and teach powerful lessons. They show Jesus' uh, power over quality. In the turning uh, water to wine, you remember that the, the wine that Jesus provides at the wedding feast is the best of the best wine. And so, Jesus' power over quality shows His power over distance or over space. So He heals the nobleman's son even though He's not present where the nobleman's son is located at the time. His power over quantity as He feeds 5,000, which is a very little bit. His power over nature and that He turns one substance into another substance, turns water into wine. His power over bodily impairment, and so He enables lame men to walk, He gives sight to the blind, and so forth. And ultimately, His power over death as He raises Lazarus from the dead. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, miracles are usually called signs. And that suggests to us that the miracle communicates a message about Jesus' identity, something about Jesus. And so, the miracle performed doesn't draw attention to itself, the act of power itself, but it says something about the one who performed the miracle. And so, when Jesus gives the blind man his sight, he says, I'm the light of the world. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he says, I'm the bread of life. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so you can see He's tying that message about Himself to the, the miracle. John even tells us why He records the miracles. And so John chapter 20 verse 30 says, Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. And so John acknowledges that Jesus did a lot of other miracles that are not recorded in the book. And uh, but it goes on to say, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so I've included these seven so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you want to add the resurrection of Jesus to do that, that even uh, underlines and uh, puts exclamation points uh, following that statement. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In that believing, you may have life in His name. Tonight I want to talk about one of the miracles in John chapter 9. Jesus gives sight to the blind man. Now, when I, this is a long chapter, so we're not going to read all, all of it, not going to read every verse. This is set the stage. It takes place in the city of Jerusalem, and the pool of Siloam, the pool of the Siloam, plays a significant role. For a long time they didn't know exactly where the Pool of Siloam was, and so there was a possible location that was offered. But in recent years they've discovered the Pool of Siloam. And there you can see, here's a picture of it. And they're doing some excavation work at the Pool of Siloam. You can see the steps leading down into this part over here is where the water would have been. And so this is really a, a really large pool. When I was Growing up, and I'd hear about these pools, the Pool of Siloam, the Pool of Bethesda, and so forth. I thought maybe like a swimming pool, maybe that size, but, but really much, much larger. 
I don't know if this is exactly what it looks like, but this is uh, somebody's rendition of it or, or conception of the pool of Siloam. And might have been something like that anyway. And so what happens is Jesus encounters this blind man and, as we'll see, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so let's begin reading in, in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. And we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated is sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. So that's, it's interesting. I'm always kind of uh, impressed with how brief the actual account of the miracle is. What follows is conversation about the miracle and controversy about the miracle, and we'll spend most of our time in that part of the passage. So there's a blind man that Jesus encounters, the disciples encounter. They see him, they see him there. He's, he's begging. A little bit later on, he's identified as a beggar. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not the, this the one who used to sit and beg? And so, and so he's a blind man, can't work. And so in order to support himself, in order to get some money, he sits along the way and, and begs. Now he's sitting at a, as a, at a busy spot. You, you wouldn't beg in an isolated spot. You wouldn't go into back, some back alley somewhere and, and set up and beg. And, and so people are going to see him. They're going to know him. They're going to see him day after day after day. And he becomes rather well known. So again, the disciples ask this question about his blindness, assuming that all conditions like this are the direct result of sin. And so this man is blind, and so he must have sinned, or, or maybe his parents sinned, and that's, that's why he was blind. After all, all these kinds of conditions must be the direct result of sin. And Jesus denies that. He, he said, now this man didn't sin, that's not why he's blind. And he, he's not blind because his parents sinned. In this particular case, Jesus says it provides an opportunity for him to display the works of God. You can see that in verse 3. And so it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus knew ahead of time what he was going to do. And so he knew that on this occasion, in this place with this man, he would restore the man's sight. In John chapter 14, verse 29, Jesus says, Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens you might believe. And so Jesus tells them, now this is what I'm going to do the work, I'm going to perform the works of God. And so he kind of tells them what he's going to do, maybe not in precise detail, but gives them an indication that I'm going to do something with this man. And he tells them those kinds of things ahead of time. It's not the only case where that happens, so that when they see it come to pass, they will believe. Jesus spits on the ground, and he takes some of that mud and spittle and puts it on the man's eyes and says, now I want you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. That's, that's pretty exciting. I was able to go to the pool of Siloam back several years ago. And you, you stand there and you just think, wow, this, this is where that happened. This is where Jesus spat on the ground and 
put clay on the man's eyes and go, and, and go wash. That, the spitting and all that was somewhere else. But the man went and washed in, in this pool. And look at verse 7. And right at the end, he went away and washed and came back seeing. And so I've entitled the lesson tonight, A Blind Man, a blind man Sees. And so he's blind, but he comes back after he washes he comes back seeing. So a blind man sees. Now, notice, we'll stop right here just for a moment to say, in order to receive the gift of sight by the grace of God and by God's power, the man was required to wash in the pool. Remember we talked about this last week when we were talking about Moses lifting up the serpent, and in order for them to be healed of the serpent bite, they had to look. Well, here we have another kind, uh, an example of that kind of thing. The man was healed by God's power, not by his own power. The man was healed by God's grace. God gave him his sight. It was a gift. And yet, in order to receive God's power and God's gift, he was required to go and wash. And so, when he did, when he went and washed, he came back seeing. But not until he went and washed. Then he came back seeing. And so, the passage serves as an example of how God's gifts can be given on a conditional basis. So it is with the remission of sins. And so we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 that Peter on that day calls upon the crowd to know with certainty that Jesus has made Him both Lord and Christ. This is another way of saying, I want you to believe this. You, you put your faith, you know this. Believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And then they cry, oh, what do we need to do? And Peter tells them, Here's something, here's what you need to do. Peter doesn't say, what well, you don't have to do anything. No, he gives some instruction, doesn't he? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for that looks forward to the remission of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you will receive, again, looking forward, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when we believe and repent and confess... And when we are washed with the water of regeneration, that's the term that's used over in the book of Titus in chapter 3 and verse 5, that we, according to His mercy, receive the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So I think that refers to baptism. Then our sins are washed away and we are in fellowship with God. So this is simply an, an example of that kind of thing, that God's power and God's grace are often given on conditional basis. Well, I want to talk mainly about the conversation and the controversy that arises as a result of this. As I said a moment ago, the actual healing of the man takes only, what, uh, seven verses? Well, the chapter is uh, about, well, 40 verses. And so the rest of it's just conversation and again, dialogue and controversy. And just draw out some lessons. The first one is that, well, we've talked about this. The first one I want to draw out is, is this. What, what does this sign imply about Jesus? Now, I think that's the primary, the most obvious lesson. What does this sign imply about Jesus? Well, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In this, in this passage. He says in verse 5, While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And you can see how that statement ties together with giving a blind man his sight. And so here's a man that's in darkness. He can't see. 
And so he, he lives in darkness. And when Jesus opens his eyes, now he lives in the light. And so I'm the light of the world. I'm the source of light in the world. And he illustrates that by giving this man his sight. Remember the passage we read earlier from John chapter 20, the reason John records these miracles? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does this miracle say about Jesus? What does it imply about Him? That He is the Son of God, or saying that another way from this context, I am the light of the world. We noted earlier in our introductory comments that John includes these I am statements. These are, this is one of them. I am the light of the world. And there are six others, just seven miracles. There are seven of these I am statements. It says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the true vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Light in the Bible represents truth and knowledge and understanding and insight. We use the word enlightenment sometimes. I've been enlightened. I've come to understand truth. I, I, I can see what I haven't been able to see before. I have a new perspective, a new understanding. And so, and so light represents that knowledge and understanding and insight. In the Bible, light represents the nature and character of God especially. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is, is light. And so light represents the character and the nature of God. He is altogether good. He is holy without any hint, without any taint of, of evil. It's contrasted with darkness, which represents ignorance and evil and sinfulness. And so God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. John goes on to say, and he, in 1 John chapter 1, he contrasts God who is light with the darkness, with evil. And he says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And, and so we can't say we have fellowship with the light and walk in darkness. No, he goes on to say, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, if we live a holy life as God is holy, a pure life as God is pure, a righteous life as God is righteous, then we can have fellowship with God. But if we walk in darkness, in ignorance, in evil, in sinfulness, well then we can't have fellowship with God. And so light represents knowledge, understanding, insight, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the, the righteous character of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Here's a good passage to illustrate darkness. Verse 18, he tells us not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And so there you get a good, good, good grip on, good hold of darkness. Look at John chapter 3, where these two things are contrasted even further. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. Who does not believe in Him has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now this is the judgment 
that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light before their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that the deeds, his deeds might be manifested as having been wrought in God. So there you have a little study about light and darkness in the Bible, especially focused in the writings and the Gospel of John. When Jesus comes into the world, He says He is the light. John chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus, John says of Jesus, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. See the link between life and light. When Jesus claims to be the light of the world, He means, I am the truth. I am the source of truth in the world. I am the source of life in the world. I'm the source of understanding in the world. And so my words are true words. I am the true manifest, manifestation of God in the world. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He's explained Him. And so Jesus will say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I'm the light. I am the source of truth in the world. I, I, I am the manifestation of God's character in the world. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say that I reflect the light. That's not what He says. He doesn't say, now we can reflect the light. The apostles could reflect the light, but we're not the light. So Jesus doesn't say, I reflect the light. No, I am the light. We might have a mirror that reflects the sun. That's one thing. But it's not the sun itself, is it? And Jesus is saying, I am the sun. <laughs> I am the light of the world. Our world is a dark place. Though we live in an information age, the level of spiritual ignorance is just about immeasurable in, in our world, isn't it? And it, you, you may have uh, come across that as you've dealt with co-workers and friends and neighbors and things like people like that. And so... There's, there's, Wes and I were talking one day, Wes made the observation, there's no excuse not to know anything. If you don't know the answer to a question, just get your phone out and you Google it, and you got, there it is, there's the answer right there, you know, got the information. The level of spiritual ignorance in the world, spiritual darkness, oh wow, it, it's great. And it's getting darker, isn't it? It's no coincidence that as the level of uh, understanding and knowledge of spiritual things has decreased, the level of immorality has increased. And so the light is diminishing and the darkness is getting greater. And we, we need the light, don't we? We need the light. And Jesus is that light. He is the light, the source of truth, the manifestation of God in the world. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about Three people in the story. Three people or three groups of people. We said much of the account is taken up with controversy and conversation. And, and that conversation will, will, will bring our focus to these three people or three groups of people. The first group of people I want to talk about are the Pharisees. And so the, the Pharisees come to see what has happened. They, they understand that, that this man who is blind can now see, and that Jesus 
is the one who healed him. Now, they don't want to believe that. They don't want to give Jesus the credit for that. And so they try to, to negate that in, in several different ways. And so they are, represent uh, people who simply will not see the truth. They won't even consider what the sign indicated about Jesus. They won't even consider what this miracle says about Jesus of Nazareth. They could only see that Jesus had worked on the Sabbath and concluded then that he could not be from God. And so you can see that in verses 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. It was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And so in their minds, Jesus worked on the Sabbath day and and that means that he must be a sinner. He could not be from God. And so as you go through the passage, you find those kinds of statements made. Verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Or the words of the Pharisees, the description of Jesus. We know this man is a sinner. And so they refuse even to consider the evidence. They refuse even to consider the possibility. Their minds are closed from the very beginning, and they just simply will not see what has been done. First of all, they try to deny the miracle. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he see? And his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and he was born blind. So first thing they try to do to deny is deny the miracle. This man wasn't born blind. This isn't the guy. And that didn't work. They called his parents. Yeah, that, that's the guy. <laughs> you know, that's our, they know his son. or They know their son. And they know that he was born blind. They know what happened. They know what the, their son says happened. And so, and so that tact didn't work. And then they try to discredit the witness, the man himself. And so in verse 28, they reviled him and said, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. And so they try to discredit him. They revile him. They accuse him. Oh, yeah, you, 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 we can't believe your testimony. You're one of his disciples. You're biased. You're not telling us the truth. You just want to attribute these things to Jesus to, to promote him. You're a disciple. And so they revile him and try to discredit him. And, of course, that doesn't work. And then finally, they try to discredit Jesus as a nobody. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this, this man, we, we don't know where he's from. We, we don't know anything about this guy. He's a nobody, you know. He's come from South. We don't even know anything about him. And of course, that, that doesn't work either. We'll see how the blind man responds to all of that. The point is here that their minds are closed. They're the truly blind ones in the story, aren't they? They're, they're really the ones that are blind. The blind man isn't blind. <laughs> Not only does he regain his physical sight, he gets insight into the identity of Jesus. These people's minds are closed and they refuse to see. In fact, in verse 41, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? are we? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And so the idea is, if you would admit your spiritual blindness, you could learn something. But you, you refuse to do that. You, you refuse to admit that you need some help. And so you remain in darkness. And so they're, they're really the blind ones. Well, there are people like this today, aren't they? Aren't there? Their minds are closed. 
They'll resort to any argument as long as it provides them with an excuse to avoid the truth about Jesus. Their minds are made up. They don't want to be confused with the facts. They're like the Jews in Acts chapter 28. Paul deals with them and he says, The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart would turn and I would heal them. There are people like this today. Just refuse to believe. Just refuse. They'll accept any argument about Christ as long as it provides them with an excuse to reject Him. Just unwilling from the very outset to consider any evidence that might point to the authority and the, the nature of Christ, the divine nature of Christ. Well, we don't want to be in that group. Well, here's a second group of people, the, the parents of the man. Know the truth, but they're afraid. And so we talked about that in verses 18 and 19. They call the parents and ask, him, ask them some questions. Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with them saying that. I have adult children. And if someone were to come to me and ask me a question, I might say, well, they're, they're adult children. Go ask them. You know. And so I don't know if there's anything wrong with saying that in and of itself. But their motive was wrong. And you see that in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they're evading the truth, evading confessing Christ. They knew, they could identify their son. They knew this was him. They knew he was born blind. And no doubt as they talked to him, he would have told them exactly what happened. But they just unwilling to confess it because they were afraid. Now there are others like them in the Gospel of John. If you turn over to John chapter 12, you can see in verse 42, many of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so there are others, and in this case, they, these are believers. They believe in Jesus, but they're afraid to confess it because they're afraid of being put out of the synagogue. In John chapter 18, we find even Peter. <laughs> Peter on that occasion denied Jesus. And so these are people that they, they know the truth. They, they know who Jesus is. They, they know His identity, that He's the Son of God, that He's the Christ, that He's the one that performed this miracle. But for fear, they won't confess it. Well, we don't want to be among these either. And we may find ourselves in a situation in which we fear confessing Christ. Uh, we, maybe we're intimidated or we're a little timid. We're in a situation where maybe it's going to be unpopular to stand up and say, Hey, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. And if that hasn't happened to us yet, it's going to happen some, sometime in our lives. What we want to do is 
We want to be strong and courageous. We, we want to be willing to stand up and say, yes, I believe. Ephesians 6 and verse 13. Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That's what we want to do. We want to stand firm. And then if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we don't want to be in this group either. If we know the truth, stand for truth. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear the loss. We may lose something. We may lose a friend. We may lose a relationship of some kind. We, we may lose something. But you know what Jesus says? He says, for everything we lose in this life, we'll receive abundantly more in the life to come and even eternal life. And then there's a third group of people. That's the blind man himself, not a group, but a third person. The blind man himself. It's interesting, the understanding of the blind man develops throughout the course of the story. It's kind of like the Samaritan woman at the well in that regard. You know, her, her understanding develops. In, in verse 11 of John chapter 9, they, they ask him, you know, who, who enabled you to see? And he said, well, there's a man called Jesus. He made clay and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed, and I, I received my sight. And so, uh, I mean, there was a man named Jesus who did this. In verse 17, he says, He's a prophet. And so you can see, he's thinking about these things, and, and he's drawing conclusions about Jesus based on what has happened to him. He enters into a little match with the Pharisees, almost like a fencing match. And so you have the Pharisees, and they're, they're striking, and, and then he's responding, and you have this back and forth between the Pharisees and, and the blind man. Look at verse 24. A second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Attack. Strike. Response. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Well, I, I, I don't know about that, but I do know this. You know? I was blind, and now I can see, and he had the power to do it. Second strike, verse 26. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And Well, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You want to become one of his disciples too? He's a pretty sharp guy, isn't he? And so he's confounding them, isn't he? Oh, why do you keep asking me these questions? Oh, you want some information about how to become a disciple? You see, he's, he's a bright guy, a little sarcastic, perhaps. But there's strike two. And then as we go on, look at verse 28. They reviled him, said, You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where this man has come from. Response. Here's an amazing thing. That you don't know where he's come from, and he opened my eyes. You can't figure that out, where he's come from. 
We know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. And so I know where this man is from. You say, he's gave, he had the power to open my eyes. That comes from God, and so he must be right with God, or God wouldn't have responded in, in the way that he did. He goes on in uh, verse 31, We know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone's God-fearing and does His will, He hears them since the beginning of time. It has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing in his understanding, hasn't he? There's a man called Jesus. He put mud on my eyes and told me to wash. I did, and I came back seeing. I think he's a prophet. Now, it's interesting. You don't know where he came from. I know where he, I know where he must have come from. This man is from God. Well, as the story unfolds, verse 35, Jesus, and they put him out of the synagogue. That's what his parents were afraid of, and that's what they did to him. He's unafraid, unafraid of the Pharisees. Even though they have the power to control his access to the synagogue, he doesn't care. You know? A believer who is unafraid. Well, go forth in, in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And he said to him, You've both seen him. He's the one who's talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Who do we worship? We worship only God. And so he says, yes, I believe. And he worships him. Strong confession of faith. It's interesting. When the Pharisees, they couldn't answer his questions. They put him out of the synagogue. They just strong arm him, don't they? They don't have an answer for him. So they just bully him. Oh, yeah, you're out of here. You know, it's the way people do sometimes. Again, he's unafraid of any of that. Willing to confess Christ, this man is from God, willing to pay the price. And in the end, he receives Christ's blessing. Who are we going to be like among these three? Who, who are we going to be like? We're going to be like the Pharisees, closed minded, unwilling to consider the evidence? Or are we going to be like the parents, knowing, knowing the truth, but afraid to confess? Or are we going to be like the blind man? Lord, I believe and willing to pay the price. Now, there's only one that's blessed in the end, right? The Pharisees don't receive Christ's blessing. The parents don't receive Christ's blessing. But the blind man does. The one who's a believer and unafraid. Let's be like him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word that's revealed to us, that we have access to it, that we can read it and understand it that we can learn wonderful lessons from the Word that you've given to us, powerful lessons that have an effect on our lives. Help us, Father, to learn from this passage. A, a humble man, a man born blind, and yet a man so strong in his faith, he's willing to stand up in the face of opposition, even though it cost him, he's willing to stand and confess Christ and pay the price. Father, may we be like him. May we understand the nature of your Son. May we be committed to Him. May we be outspoken for Him. And even though it costs us, even though there's a price to be paid for that, may we be unafraid and stand firm. We look forward, Father, to the great gift that you will give us, the gift of eternal life, if we stand strong. And we're thankful for that. 
We ask these things, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.